watchers in the fourth dimension. and ghouls to a special Halloween horror episode of Watches in the Fear Dimension. I'm your host, the TARDIS Keeper. I'm Don, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> I'm Julie. And I'm Anthony. Welcome to the Scottish. <coughs> hey everyone, welcome to the TARDIS tonight. Our double bill is the 1976 classic The Omen and the Amicus Productions anthology film from 1971, The House That Dripped Blood. Before we get into the details, we must credit the wonderful opening music, which is What If John Carpenter Did a Doctor Who Theme that George C. Music, a music account on YouTube and SoundCloud, that creates music that answers this one question. What if X musician covered the Doctor Who theme? I highly encourage everyone to check it out. Once again, that is George C. Music. This is a new type of bonus episode for us. We plan each spooky season to cover two films or any two pieces of media that involve a Doctor Who actor in the horror genre. We'll focus on the actors who play the Doctors, but we will keep an eye on the companions as well. For this episode, we are starting with Troughton and Pertwee, but there are three other Who actors who show up tonight. Seeing that we are starting with the second Doctor, you are probably asking about William Hartnell. Well, he has such a large filmography that it is difficult to find a horror movie and one where his role is of a decent size. If any of our listeners have any suggestions for a Hartner horror film, please tell us. The only thing I could find was a film called Midnight at Madame Tussauds from 1936. But since I wasn't too sure about the genre or his screen time, it'll have to be put on hold for now. Let's get to the double feature. When the Jews return to Zion and a comet rips the sky and the Holy Roman Empire rises, then you and I must die. From the eternal sea he rises, creating armies on either shore, turning man against his brother till man exists no more. Those chilling words, said by our beloved second doctor, set the premise for an absolute horror classic, The Omen, written by David Seltzer and directed by Richard Donner. If the poem I used to introduce the film was too cryptic, let me clarify. The film tells the story of an American diplomat and his wife who eventually discovered that their child is the Antichrist. Now, some criticize this film as just cashing in on the devil craze from The Exorcist from three years early. I will ask our crew, is it more than that? What stands out about this film? Well, I'm waiting for Julie to say, obviously, the score. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I didn't want to be that obvious. But to be fair, you do get that right out the gate with the opening credits. And that opening, you got this chilling music and you eventually get into your singing in Latin with the choral arrangement. And it's our genius Jerry Goldsmith. I'm sure there's going to be more of a comment around that later. But if we're looking at overall is the question really about how is it different from The Exorcist, right? Yeah. There's several things. I think it's a much broader scope because it seems that one of the premises in this was that he needed to be the quote unquote son of a diplomat because it needed to be a political leader in order to actually take over the world, which seems a little bit bizarre, but also at the same time, actually kind of brilliant because I would never think that hey, in order to take over the world, I need to be the son of a diplomat. Uh, <laughs> it's a little bit broader of scope as opposed to The Exorcist, which was just in one house involving one girl and very, very much just secluded into that one little spot. To be fair, I haven't actually seen the entirety of The Exorcist, so I might not be the best to comment. 
And to be fair, to add to that, The Exorcist is about a girl who becomes possessed. Here, the child is just flat out the Antichrist from the very beginning. You also have to remember, it's part of the zeitgeist at the time. The devil was huge in the 70s. You had the devil, CB radio, and guys hanging out with monkey sidekicks. But mostly it was the <laughs> devil. You've got The Exorcist, you've got this, you've got Rosemary's Baby. I'm sure there's probably a few, a few more hidden gems in there. The Mephisto Waltz. Yes, it was just part of that era. But do you believe that this movie stands on its own, that it could not be criticized for maybe just cashing in on this? or It stands on its own. Yeah. It stands yeah. on its own? Okay. Absolutely. Absolutely stands on its own. It's well written. It's very well made. It has an amazing score. It's just a very good movie. And- for all of you, was this your first time seeing it for this review, or had you seen it before? I probably saw it 15, maybe 16, 17 years ago, but I hadn't seen it since. Did it kind of scare you when you saw it back then? No. When I was about 16, I went through a huge horror phase watching you know, all of the classics, Friday the 13th, Hellraiser, Nightmare on Elm Street, Texas Chainsaw Massacre, this, Rosemary's Baby, The Exorcist, etc., etc. I think by the time I got round to this, I kind of immunized myself to being scared. I just thought it was pretty cool. Don, Julie? I don't know if it's scary, but I like horror movies and I live in a household where if you do something for someone else, you will say, it's all for you, Damien. So it's kind of <laughs> part of that. But there are some good shocking scenes in it, especially the mm -hmm. scene where David Warner gets his head cut off by the glass, <laughs> which yes. is very scientific in that the editor took a lot of shots and he realized, okay, people are going to close their eyes here. Let's have this scene keep going from different angles so I can get them when they open their eyes back up. <laughs> <laughs> when was the first time you saw the film, Don? Oh my God, probably in my early 20s. And surprise, surprise, I had never seen this. Oh, right. How was it this first time? It's really good. So one of the things with me is I don't watch a lot of horror. And one of the problems that I have is that as I was growing up, horror turned into gore. And so I kind of was anti-horror films because I didn't want to watch gory films. I don't need to see Saw. I don't need to see Hostel. I don't need to see people getting tortured. But I love suspense. I love a good suspense. I love a good thriller. I love all of those type of things. One thing to note is that sometimes, a lot of times, the ones that are a little bit more religious scare me a little bit more just in the sense that I did grow up Catholic. So there's a little bit of that going on. Same here. <laughs> um, so there's a little bit of a, oh yeah, this is a, maybe could potentially happen, maybe. <laughs> uh, that goes on in the back of your head. But yes, I really did enjoy it. There were a few moments where I was like, man, that was a good way to do it. I love bringing in the dog. I think the dog was probably one of my favorite just characters in it. But yeah, so I enjoyed it. Let's dive into something that... I'm sure we have already hinted at that we want to talk about, and that is Jerry Goldsmith. He won an Academy Award for Best Original Score for this film. It was his only win out of 17 nominations for Best Score, which include Planet of the Apes, Patton, Chinatown, Star Trek The Motion Picture, Poltergeist, and my personal favorite, if you haven't heard it, the score to Hoosiers. Now, Julie, what did you think of the score? And then we'll have the other two answer after her. <laughs> I just um, want to point well, out, Anthony have been reduced to being the other two. Please continue, <laughs> yeah. Julie. For a music question, yes. For a music question, obviously. I saw that you left out The 13th Warrior and The Mummy. Okay. I'm a huge, huge fan of The Mummy. We're talking about the 90s one with Brendan Fraser. But I 
read up some trivia on this. And I think my favorite thing that happened was Jerry Goldsmith had been nominated eight times before this movie and he had never won. So when the omen came up, he's like, I'm not going this time because I always get nominated and I never win. (laughs) And of course he won. (laughs) So I think that's... (laughs) Phenomenal. What I liked about the music is I already mentioned it before. You have these choral arrangements. You got some singing going on in Latin. You have the strings in the right place because strings is really what gets you in horror films. But what I liked most was that they cut the music off and then just did sound effects for some of the scariest moments. You had the moment when Damien ran into his mother and she fell off the banister and it plays the music while he's circling in the room. It cuts the music off and then you just hear the squeak of the tires and then he hits her and then you hear the glass just hit the ground and then you hear the thud as she hits the ground. And you had it happen as well with the woman who hung herself at the very beginning. It played music up to a certain point and then it stopped. And they did a really good job of deciding, hey, you know what? We're going to use the music to drive the tension, but then we're going to let the sound effects themselves drive the ending of these terrible things that have happened. That's my take on the music. I thought it was phenomenal. And the way that they did the placement was perfect. Less is more. Don, Anthony? I was going to ask if it was time for the other two. (laughs) Yes. The theme song, Ave Satani for me, it's just fantastic. Like yourself and Julie, I, while I wasn't raised Catholic, I was raised High Church Episcopalian, which is basically the same thing, but without the Pope. Um, or as we would say back home, High Church Church of England. <laughs> I thought the inversion of Latin in that was really, really smart. The whole thing's well constructed. The Latin's not always quite correct, but it does what it's meant to do, and it sounds fantastic. So for me, I can 100% see why he won the award for best original score and why Ave Satani in particular was nominated but did not win best original song. I wasn't raised Catholic, but as someone whose mother was a jackal, I think that the score (laughs) works perfectly. And everything that Julie said was correct. It doesn't overplay its hand. It sets the mood and then it stops and just leaves you with that feeling of tension. One of my favorite scenes is when they're going to explore the old graveyard and you've Mm. got all these different camera shots of them being viewed from different angles, which it turns out to be the dogs and you get a little bit of the score there and the silence and the wind blowing through the trees and it's just amazingly effective. Something about that graveyard scene that I always like is how all of the film is shot on location. But for that, to a trained eye, you can see that it's a studio set. But I like that fact. Maybe it's because it's hearkening to like older films, like 60s Hammer films or Universal films from the 30s. But seeing a good, well-made-up studio set just makes me happy to see that. And I thought it looked great. We've set the stage for the film. We've mentioned the award winner. Let's go ahead and talk about it. Troughton as Father Brennan, in color and in Irish. What did you think of his performance? It's fantastic. It's amazing. Yeah. He is so good. It's a character that could be completely outrageous. And and since he is, because it's supposed to be off-putting that this man just all of a sudden comes in and is spouting nonsense. But it's so well done. He's totally convincing. And I loved it. I would like to point something. I don't know if this is in your questions, Riley, but The Omen is a film not really known for its comedy or sense of humor. (laughs) But when 
His character is, is first introduced. We haven't seen him yet, but there's the phone call. He very distinctly says, who? Very loudly into the phone. <laughs> and then he does it again when he's first finding out about his death. I think that was on purpose. I think that was a little nod. It's not overplayed, but I'm fairly certain that was definitely a callback to Troughton's most famous role. Very well could be. I can see that. It's definitely possible. I mean, well, Seltzer and Donna were American, Doctor Who had made it over here in some limited amounts by the time this was being made. So it's entirely possible. If it wasn't, it's an incredible coincidence. Yeah. His death scene is considered to be famous in horror history. Obviously, Julie, you said you're not much of a horror viewer. So if you want to hold out on this question, <laughs> I wanted to ask everyone else, does this death scene, does it hold up? Oh, yeah. Definitely. I think so. I'm pretty sure it's what's being referenced during a certain death scene in Hot Fuzz, only there it's played a lot more gory. Mm -hmm. I think you're absolutely right. I think I listened to a podcast or an interview with Edgar Wright, and I think he did mention that in particular. The effect still looks good. And of course, you've got that iconic shot of Troughton with his arms stretched out, looking up as it's coming at him. That's still phenomenal. That's a really great shot. The effect is still good. Yeah, it's effective. The funny thing about the effect, it is actually really simple. Mark Gatiss did a documentary for the BBC called The History of Horror a couple of years back, and he covered The Omen. He went to the spot where they filmed that shot, and he talked about how they did that effect. And it's so simple. It was basically, this is just a testament to Troughton's acting because his timing was impeccable. There was a wire behind him planted into the ground, and they just slid something that looked like an iron spire down. And then he does that kind of like that jerk when it lands. But if you look closely enough, don't want to ruin the illusion, but if you look closely enough, you can see clearly it is just landing behind him, not through him. But it, ah. he does a great job of acting through it. And even though I can't really speak of how does it hold up against other things and things of that nature, but that whole sequence of him running trying to find a place to hide and all of the music, the tension that we talked about, like the whole sequence up to the point that he finally dies is so good. And that's why it is really effective because that buildup of tension is so well done. And then again, the music cuts, he gets hit and you're just left astounded. And then as soon as he's been hit, the weather clears up. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I mean, the, the juxtaposition there is really cool. Let's go ahead and talk about, and Don mentioned him earlier, David Warner. He plays the journalist Keith Jennings. He was in New Who. He was in the episode Cold War. He was also in the Doctor Who animated serial Dreamland. Oh, and Don, he was also in an episode of Zed Cars. Okay, that's good. He was also almost Freddy Krueger. Oh, really? He was cast wow. and did makeup tests and everything and then had a scheduling conflict. He cool. is also an alternate universe version of the Doctor in Big Finish, and he is damn good. He, he always is. He was also the lobe on Freakazoid. <laughs> <laughs> well, he's very prolific. What did you think of his performance in The Omen? He stole the show, candidly. Really? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. He is kind of the driving force for the plot, because without him pushing Thorne forward and convincing him that there's something up, you just don't think that Gregory Peck's going to keep moving forward without him pushing him, right? Right. And, you know, Gregory Peck has the top billing. But for me, to your point, Riley, it is about the plot being driven forward by David Warner. And he's the one investigating at the beginning. He's the one noticing the shadows in 
the pictures that seem to give premonitions of the way that various people die. The movie doesn't work without him, and he brings a je ne sais quoi to the character that just means I really, really like him. Don, Julie? To me, Troughton steals the show, but it's David Warner. I've never seen him be bad in a role of anything. And yes, his character does drive the plot forward a lot, but as an actor, he really pulls it off. He sells it. Well, and Don, I think Troughton's a big character in, in terms of his personality and his performance, but I'd forgotten how early on in the film he actually dies. Far too early. Yes. Yeah. David Warner's far more of a constant and lasts until, I don't know, the last 20 minutes yeah, or so. it's mm -hmm. almost at the end, and his death almost comes, especially if you don't know it, it kind of comes as a shock, especially the way it happens. Exactly. I was just going to point out, since I had never seen it and wasn't sure who to really latch on to, I suppose, it took me a little while to really figure out his character, because honestly, I was just in here, I'm like, what is this guy doing, and how in the world did he even get here? So I was kind of a little bit, I think, surprised by how big of a role he ended up taking. But to their point, he's just such a good actor that he pulls it off. But I just think it took me a little bit longer than I expected to really figure that one out. Well, before we move on to our next feature, I would like to mention that there were other actors. I always love this when you mention the other actors that are considered for a role. I'm going to tell you the other actors that were considered or even offered the role of Ambassador Robert Thorne, Gregory Peck's character. And those are Oliver Reed, William Holden, Charlton Heston, Roy Schneider, Charles Bronson, and I'm not joking, Dick Van Dyke. Now, <laughs> can you see anyone else that could have done as good of a job as Gregory Peck I, out of that list? I really like William Holden, though. I don't know why I have a soft spot for him. I don't know that he would do as good of a job, but he would probably would have been my second pick. Any of those would have made for very different films. Oddly enough, I would like to go to the alternate universe where Charlton Heston did it. And, <laughs> I was thinking and, the same thing. And yes. see how that worked out. And oddly enough, I would also love to see the Dick Van Dyke version. <laughs> for a completely different reason. Apparently he has these epic Halloween parties every year. So in some ways, oh. he would have to be into it. Yeah, I'm with Don. I can't see it as anyone else, but the others could have been entertaining and, as Don said, made very, very different films. Yeah. Strangely enough, out of that entire list, the only person there, and I think Gregory Peck's performance is very, very good, and I love Gregory Peck, but the only person on that list who I believe would do the worst job or who I think could not do it is Charles Bronson. But I actually think Dick Van Dyke could do it. I really do think he can. I think he could. It'd be a whole different film, but he could yes. do it. Let's talk about the house that dripped blood. Yes. Back in the 1960s and 70s, there were two English film production companies, Hammer Films and Amicus Productions. Hammer was famous for its updated take on the classic film monsters from the Universal era like Dracula and Frankenstein, and Amicus, on the other hand, made horror anthology films. The House That Dripped Blood was their third of these films, directed by Peter Duffel and was written by Robert Block. And Robert Block is a very prolific writer, known for the novel Psycho, which the Hitchcock film was based on. His career is absolutely massive. Tons of novels and short stories. He is a tremendous force in the weird fiction genre. He is amazing. I really like him. But let's ask the most important question first, and that is, how do we feel about horror anthology films, or for Julie, anthology films in general? 
I one was not expecting it because I got no background knowledge of Amicus films. This was my first foray into it. So I went in, I was watching the first section of it and I was like, there are some people who are not here. I don't understand what is going on. And then it was like, okay, I figured out the anthology bit of it. I love it. I became a fan. I think really the biggest (laughs) anthology film (laughs) and forgive me, but the one that I recall the most that I've watched is everything you always wanted to know about sex, but have been too afraid to ask. Oh, that's great. They usually travel in pairs, you know, (laughs) 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 so of course that's my big foray into anthology, but I really enjoy it. I think that there are a lot of stories that need to get told that don't require an hour and a half, two hours to tell them. So it's a great opportunity to go into those short little films. And it's kind of like the quick get in, get out, you tell your story, you're done. I agree with that. And as Julie said, you don't need more than 20 to 30 minutes to tell a story. And for people with short attention spans, that's really, really helpful because you get four different stories in a movie to keep it interesting. What I really liked about this one was a central concept to tie all of the segments together. I thought that made it really, really interesting and really helped the framing device have a purpose. The Amicus films are usually good about that, about having a frame device to try and kind of hold the whole thing together. I like these because you get these little quick sort of stories and they're in many ways, they're based on stuff that would appear like in Weird Tales or Vault of Horror or even Tales from the Crypt. And you can usually tell that by the pseudo ironic twist ending. Like we saw you know, in, in the first story where the wife and her lover try to drive him insane and winds up killing him. And the guy actually does go insane and kills her. Oh, got what you deserve. That kind of stuff. Classic EC comments. Classic oh. Tales from the Crypt. Oh, right yeah. There. That story in particular. I always think that anthology films, horror anthology films, there's something timeless about it. Because when you think of a scary story, you think of stories told around a campfire and they're usually rapid fire it's not a long production it's everyone sharing these spooky stories and they go from one to another so these films kind of remind you of something from time before way back let's not forget that horror anthologies are kept alive in this day and age on an annual basis by the simpsons (laughs) that's true yeah that is very true often making reference to other actual horror anthologies (laughs) Exactly. Before we move on, one thing I do want to point out with Amicus is the producers, Milton Subotsky and Max Rosenberg, were of course responsible for the two Peter Cushing Dalek movies. Of course. Was this the first time seeing this film for any of you? And if not, what was the first time you saw it? It was my first time seeing most of it. I had seen the Pertwee segment before, but the rest I had not. Surprise, surprise. I hadn't (laughs) seen it. I have seen it. In fact, I remember discussing it with you, Riley, when I first watched it. So it was either last year or the year before. Time no longer has any meaning, but I do remember us having that discussion. Well, let's get to our main Doctor Who event. John Pertwee plays a egotistical, full-of-himself actor. What did you think of his performance? Did he show a lot of range? No, it was not a lot of range because the third (laughs) Doctor's a dick. It, It was kind of his third Doctor somehow turned up. Yes. (laughs) What I love about it is he filmed this in the break between season seven and eight. So he already had a year as the third doctor under his belt when, as we've mentioned in other episodes, his basis for the character of the third doctor was to play himself. 
and it feels like he's just uh, continuing that here. He didn't even change his clothes. <laughs> no, he didn't. <laughs> now, before we continue on, my research tells me that Pertwee claims that he modeled himself after famous horror actor who's also in this, Christopher Lee. And I can see that in maybe one scene, but that's about it. The rest seems like it's all Pertwee to me. Yeah. Yeah, Christopher Lee, he's not quite that egotistical. I don't know. There's just something about it. He's not that flamboyant. He's not flamboyant. Yes. Right. There's a bit of a cocky... Like I said, I, I keep coming back to Pertwee and comparing him to Shatner for some reason. <laughs> <laughs> I just I feel it. a soul connection between the two. But you're right. That is not Christopher Lee, even though he claims that's what he was trying to model himself after in that role of a actor who is so annoyed with the lack of production quality of the film that he goes off on his own to fund his own costume. Christopher Lee always sounds like he's in control, even when he's not approving of something, he doesn't yell, he doesn't have to, because he's Christopher Lee. Yeah. John Pertwee just sounds like he's throwing a little bitch fit in this. <laughs> <laughs> that. Apologies to all Pertwee yeah. fans. I, no, I, I like him in this. I enjoy his performance. He's clearly having fun with it. He said that it was filmed as a mixture of comedy and horror, and I would love to see the stuff that they cut out. I'm glad you pointed that out, Don, because that was a future question of mine. And so I want to ask everyone, now that we're on the topic, just to clarify, Don just mentioned that Pertwee was under the impression when he was filming this that it was a comedy horror, not a straight horror. And apparently a producer came in, saw how they were shooting these scenes, was livid, and demanded them to cut out a lot of comedy from his segment and make it more straight horror. Now, I will ask you all this question. Is there any way that you can cast Pertwee as a vampire in a movie that it wouldn't be comedic? <laughs> I couldn't say. I haven't seen enough of his other work to really get an idea of his range as an actor. And as much as I don't often like his interpretation of the Doctor, I don't want to go far enough to crap on him as an actor. What they do with the character, I find really interesting because you can tell there's supposed to be comedic elements because every environment that his character is in, that he has some control over. There are enormous paintings of himself. There are pictures <laughs> of himself in other roles. So he surrounds himself with himself. So there's almost an irony that he becomes a character that can't see himself in the mirror. And I think that's what would scare him the most. Yeah, and just to add to that, think about Pertwee's career before Doctor Who, and he was best known as a comedy actor. His big thing on the radio was the Navy Lark, he'd been in the Carry On movies, he'd been in a funny thing happened on the way to the forum. So I'm not entirely surprised that originally the director wanted this to have a comedic bent, and there are still a few elements left in there. I did notice a part we gun. Mm -hmm. Yes. Mm -hmm. I did notice that wonderful little quip about Bella Lugosi and not the guy who plays Dracula now, yep. <laughs> hinting at Christopher Lee. And generally, I'm getting a little nitpicky here, but the placement of the fangs were, I think, two teeth closer together than they should have been that gave the vampires this really comedic look. Mm -hmm. Yes. What I find interesting about that and how it fits in this anthology is that nothing else is very comedic. Everything no. else yeah. is pretty much straight. And I find it interesting that 
one, they had one that was more comedic, and two, it was at the very end. My assumption is that one, with Pertwee being a comedic actor, they wanted to bring that forward because he's so good at it. But two, was it a maybe let's try to lighten the mood before we tie this all up at the very end? I just found that very interesting. I have thought about that too. You're right about the idea of that maybe it was just something to lighten it up towards the end. That's a very good point. Now, we have another doctor, our bonus doctor. Peter Cushing is in this. Our Dalek mm. movie doctor is in the second story. I watched that story, and this is Cushing playing a completely different character. Obviously, we've seen him in other films, but this is different for us from the Who perspective. And I want to ask you, this character that he plays seems a very refined gentleman. Could you see him playing a doctor like that instead of kind of a broad character? First off, those cheekbones are phenomenal. <laughs> yes. <laughs> First off, that's number one. Two, I think it would be interesting if his doctor had been played in this kind of manner because he's not standoffish. He just keeps to himself. He's quiet, but he's pleasant and he likes to talk to people and he's just piddling away. And I think it'd be interesting, but at the same time, I think the doctor would need a little bit more oomph to mm -hmm. him. So I think it couldn't be straight. Uh, he wouldn't be able to do it exactly like the way he did in this one. But I think toning him down and being more of that gentlemanly character would have been really interesting. And I probably would have enjoyed the Doctor more if he had done it that way. I'm not sure his character in this movie would work like it did in the Dalek movies. But if you kind of took his slightly more distant character here and made that the first Doctor on TV and you have him gradually open up as he brings in Ian and Barbara into the TARDIS and he starts trusting people, that would have been a really interesting take on the first Doctor rather than Hartnell kidnapping them and generally yelling at them until he starts to trust them. Or if you wanted to have that edginess, you could have Cushing do a variation on his Dr. Frankenstein. Mm. Just very determined and his own way. And mm -hmm. he's Peter Cushing. He has range. Yes. yes. Mm -hmm. He ends up doing a couple amicus anthologies where he really does show a lot of range. The most famous role over here is of Grand Moff Tarkin in the original Star Wars film. And just his cold brutality in that could be just a really interesting element to add to a television series doctor of a doctor who is very reserved and pleasant, but when you cross him, he turns very cold and callous. I've always thought he would be an excellent doctor. If you're going to go with cold and callous, put him as the war doctor, and that yeah. would be interesting. Mm. That would have been interesting. What was your favorite story out of the four? Let's not include the framework story, just the four basic stories. We have the first story, Denholmo Elliott story of the writer with the wife who betrays him by getting the murderous character brought to life. Our waxwork, that's our second one with Cushing. Our third one is our witch one with Christopher Lee. And our fourth one is our Pertwee vampire story. I have a soft spot for the third one, the witch one. One, the female characters got to play a much larger role than they did in some of the others. So, of course, I like that. That little girl was wonderful. Her little accent and lisp thing that were going on was awesome. You really didn't know what was going on. Why was Chris Lee's character so scared of her? The teacher was understanding and she kind of played between the two different characters really well. And it kind of reminded me a little bit of like Firestarter. Was that the one? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Um, Firestarter with Drew Barrymore? Yeah, because I grew up with that one. It was more of the obsession with fire and figuring that out. But I really liked that one. Don Anthony? 
this is basic being the one with the doctor in it, but I really loved <laughs> the final one. I thought it was so fun. It was campy. I loved the twist with Ingrid Pitt having been a vampire all along. It's the one I just, I found the most fun, candidly. And I think that's why that one's probably my favorite. I enjoyed all the others, but that one's just a, a little notch above. I think the cloak is probably the most fun. I have questions about the antique dealer and how that whole cape worked. <laughs> but my favorite, and it has been since I first watched this, is much like Julie, it's the one with Christopher Lee and the whole witch angle. And that little girl is amazing. The teacher, you can just see it like at the end, the horror on her face that she realized that he was right. I really enjoy that story. But I think the first one, I could see that being extended out into more of a feature-length film by itself, just because it's an interesting concept. Waxworks is the one I find a little silly, about all these guys sort of falling in love with a not-that-attractive wax figure. <laughs> I mean, come on. <laughs> I'm with you on that, Don. I appreciate the witch segment with Christopher Lee because it's just, for a person who's seen a lot of classic horror movies, to see Christopher Lee to play the put-upon character, the victim, is an interesting twist and he does a great job with it because i think he's a fantastic actor so that was an interesting touch let's dive in more into the cloak let's discuss ingrid pitt she was on who twice she is going to be with the third doctor in a serial called the time monster that we are on the way to see and she's also in a serial with the fifth doctor called warriors of the deep and in 1984 her husband and her were commissioned to write a script for Who, but it never made it on the show. But it was done on Big Finish called The Macros. I did not know all about that, but I know her work on Hammer, and I've seen her other performances. What did everyone think of her performance in The Cloak? I thought she was spectacular in The Cloak. The thing is, is that I don't know that I have seen her in anything else, so I can't really comment on that all that much. I didn't really see her as much different as many of the other women. I honestly enjoyed the teacher more than I enjoyed her. So sorry, guys. She was good. She was over the top outrageous when she turned <laughs> into the vampire at the very end. So that part was wonderful. But I really can't say that I thought of her as anything more than she was kind of there. She'd done other vampire type movies, so I think her role in this was to kind of spoof that and to be, if we will pardon the crudeness, tits and teeth. Mm -hmm. <laughs> That's what she was there for, and she was playing up that image. She did what she was hired to do. And very successfully. Yes, and she was successful with that and later turned out to be a successful writer, despite the fact that her Who script did not make it on screen and made it on Big Finish, but she also wrote other books and did a lot of other things. She had a very interesting career. Lastly, let's discuss the shopkeeper that Pertwee buys a cloak from holding the black cat. That is a person named Jeffrey Bailden, who we will see later in a fourth Doctor story called The Creature from the Pit. But he also did two big Finnish audios, playing an alternative first Doctor, and apparently he was offered the role of the first Doctor, but turned it down. But more importantly, he was on Zed Cars. <laughs> <laughs> the most important thing. Joking aside, I know it was a limited amount of screen time. Could you see him play the first Doctor or do a take on the first Doctor? I feel like I'm biased on this because I have heard his Big Finish plays and thought he was fantastic. So I know he can do it. I think he could have, but I think it would have been slightly more comedic than Hartnell's take. Which Hartnell had a few comedic moments, but I think this would have leaned a bit more into that. 
Yeah, and I think obviously by the time he gets round to playing the Doctor in Big Finish, he was a lot older. I think by then he was probably late 70s, early 80s, whereas in 1963 he would have been in his late 30s. So he was a lot younger than Hartnell, and to that point he would have been a much younger Doctor. Would they have the intention to play him as a young doctor or would they have aged him up with makeup? Because I know that there was a kid's show or something that he was on. Yeah, Cat Weasel. They might have aged him a little to make it realistic that he could have been Susan's grandfather, but I <laughs> I don't think they could have made him look in his 60s or 70s as they did with Hartnell. Well, we've discussed these two films. I will let everyone gather their thoughts for a moment and then I'll just ask you to summarize how you felt about these movies. Would you recommend them generally? Would you recommend them to Who fans just to get those Who actors and to see them work outside of Who? I will start with Anthony. In general, I would recommend them very highly. The Omen, I think, is an absolute masterpiece of horror. I think in general, the cast is phenomenal. The direction's incredible. The score is fantastic. There's a lot to like there. The way it builds tension, it's just, as I said, it's a masterpiece. Would I recommend it to Doctor Who fans in general? Probably not. If you're a Doctor Who fan who likes horror or you like kind of the more psychological side of horror, yes, go watch it, go see Troughton, he is great in it. But I'm not sure it's necessarily got that same kind of basic vibe at the core of it that draws people into Doctor Who. The House That Dripped Blood, on the other hand... I loved every minute of it. It was campy. I loved the anthology concept. And I think it has, probably because of its Britishness in the amicus tradition, it feels a lot more like it's from the same tradition as Doctor Who, regardless of Pertwee being in it or not. And then you have the other actors who've either been in Doctor Who or have kind of touched Doctor Who by virtue of films they've been in with other people. And again, it's just it's so enjoyable. So overall, I love them both. Would definitely recommend The House That Dripped Blood to Doctor Who fans. We'll also say there's not one drop of blood in the film, in case anyone's worried about that. And then The Omen, again, if you enjoy horror, you enjoy psychological horror, definitely recommend. If you're not a horror fan, but you are a Doctor Who fan, yeah, probably not for you. Don? I think The Omen is an incredible film. It's the type of thing where I don't think it really matters if you're a Doctor Who fan. If you like well-crafted films about parents who realize that maybe having a child wasn't a good idea, <laughs> it's great. It's got an awesome score. I don't think it matters if you're into the genre because it's so well done. It doesn't rely on the fact that it's a horror film. With The House That Drip Blood, it has a very misleading title. And even the titles themselves are nervous about it because they're shaking the whole time that it's on there. They, they know they're lying. <laughs> if you like early 1970s British horror type stuff where there's not a lot of budget, it may be a little slow, but you've got great actors. Yeah, watch it. And if you are a fan of The Third Doctor, watch Pertree in this. He's hilarious. So, yeah, I would definitely recommend both of these. Julie? With The Omen, I side a little bit more with Don. I think that it's just a really, really good film. Again, I'm not super huge into horror. I haven't seen a lot of it, so I, I don't really compare it much to things in the genre. And it was definitely something that I just thought was fantastic. Music, direction, all of it. So, so good. And obviously, Troughton is phenomenal in it. So I think that anyone could watch it. It is a different take. It's not like Doctor Who, but it doesn't have to be like Doctor Who for people to enjoy it. 
as to the house that dripped blood. I personally didn't enjoy it as much, not to say that I didn't, but I'm not used to that type of filmmaking, the anthology. I like it well enough. I'd still recommend it to Who fans because Pertwee is Pertwee. Um, there's, if you like him, then you'll like that. And again, if you are the fan of Christopher Lee and Cushing and all of them, obviously you should watch it. But for general Doctor Who fans, other than just watching that one part, the cloak, I don't know that I would recommend the whole thing unless you're used to that type of genre. Yeah, my opinion is kind of a scattering of the opinions that everyone has given. I think that The Omen is a classic horror film. I think it's a film that stands on its own outside of the horror genre. That's how well it's made. Richard Donner, after that, got paid a lot of money and got put a lot of pressure on him to make the Superman movie, which was the godfather of big budget superhero movies. But this movie gave him the opportunity to make that movie. For a Who fan with The Omen, I can see it wouldn't necessarily be to the taste of a Who fan, but I think Trotland's performance is absolutely wonderful. So if it bugs you about too much, maybe just watch the first 45 minutes <laughs> until he is brutally <laughs> killed and then move on. <laughs> the house that drip blood, I feel the style and tone and the Britishness of it all is a lot more in keeping to classic Who and something that would not be too outlandish or too terrifying or off-putting compared to a scary Doctor Who episode. So if you're a fan of Classic Who, I could see you definitely liking this because it's a taste of British horror, a taste of Britain in the early 1970s with classic actors. Dan Homo Elliott, we only touched on him a little bit, but he is excellent and he's a great actor as well as Cushing and Lee. I would recommend that to all Who fans. I would only recommend The House of Drip Blood to people that are severe horror fans. <laughs> <laughs> you have to have a particular taste for that because you're not going to get exactly what you're expecting. <clears throat> well, that's it, kitties. Remember to put away your Gore-Tex manipulators and be sure to reverse the scalarity. <laughs> but please, once again, enjoy George C. Music's take on what if John Carpenter did a Doctor Who theme. Thank you, and have a happy Halloween. Listening to Watchers in the Fourth Dimension with Don Smith, Julie Filipek, Anthony Williams, and myself, Riley Shrek. This bonus episode, The Devil Was Huge in the 70s, was recorded on Wednesday, the 6th of October 2021. If this is your first time listening in, all of our previous episodes are available through your favorite podcasting app. You can interact with us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at Watchers4D. And you can also email us at Watchers4D at gmail.com. If you're enjoying the show, please do subscribe and leave us a review or rating on your favorite podcasting app. All of those things really do help the show. And remember, even if your mother was a jackal, you should call her sometime.